This is HPR episode 1960 entitled Fostum 2016 AW Building and more. It is hosted by Ken Fallen and is about 116 minutes long. The summary is FreeBSD Matrix Brain Durino Button I've Piper Reboot Open Embedded Pico TCP PTX Dist Java Card Pro. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. I'm here again with... Hi, I'm Ed Mast. I'm a developer on the FreeBSD Foundation. Okay, for those of us who doesn't know what the FreeBSD Foundation is, what is, what is the FreeBSD... What is FreeBSD to, free, free to start off with? FreeBSD is an open source operating system that's been around for uh, decades um, and is a widely used, uh, permissively licensed operating system um, that's, that's used for embedded appliances. It's used as uh, an operating system on people's laptops and desktops, and its components of FreeBSD are used um, for people building other products and in, in all kinds of different ways. So it's really, truly, come, it's a Unix first start, and it comes back from the whole AT&T Berkeley thing, the B from B is the Berkeley thing. B is B is Berkeley, and yes, it, it dates back to um, the the original has a lineage um, through to original Berkeley Unix. Okay, so most people, I guess, here on this are familiar with the uh, the whole. Well, we've had the GPL licensing uh, interview, which people on listening to this will not have heard yet, but it'll be in the feed. So can you tell us from a licensing perspective what the difference is between, say, Linux and the BSDs? So broadly speaking, um, the the well-known GPL license says that if you make a derivative of the the software, then you have to make those changes available in the source code as well. The uh, BSD license um, and similar permissively license, similar permissive licenses state that you can basically use the source code in different ways. Um, you can make changes to it and produce a binary-only uh, derivative of that source code if you like, or you can um, make changes to it and release the source code as well. Okay. And that would be the, that would, is what allowed Apple to take a BSD kernel and basically ship that without handing anything back to the community, I guess. Um, so, it's true that someone like Apple is able to take components of FreeBSD and use them um, in in Mac OS, um, but that doesn't affect FreeBSD itself, right? FreeBSD still exists, and FreeBSD continues to be a free uh, free operating system. Um, and people like Apple contribute um, lots of money and developer time into projects like LLVM and Clang, the toolchain that we're using in FreeBSD now. So there's a lot of um, work that still happens in permissively licensed uh, components 
across the spectrum, regardless of whether um, uh, it's Apple or someone else doing that kind of work. Okay, but the the whole fact that you're developing your own compiler and getting away from the GCC is that not like just simply a duplication duplication of effort in order to get around a you know the fact that you don't like the GPL as a license? Uh, I wouldn't say that's that's the case. I mean, we in the FreeBSD community um, we like Clang and LLVM for a lot of different reasons. Um, it may well be that Apple uh, was strongly motivated to do that because. Uh, because of their preference for non-GPL software. Um, but from, from our perspective, um, I think it's very much the case that, uh, the, the GCC had, had stagnated a lot. Um, the, the error messages specifically in GCC were, were, uh, in very, very poor shape. Um, GCC's error, error handling was, um, very difficult to make sense, uh, as a, a user, um, what it was trying to tell you and, Clang, when it came, when Clang came along, um, it really kind of invigorated, um, the, the open source compiler world again. And Clang was producing much better error messages and a lot of developers started using Clang because it was, it was much easier for, for them to understand what the compiler was trying to tell them. Um, GCC has, has improved, uh, immensely since this happened. But I think it's important, um, not to have sort of a monoculture of, um, of software, whether it's, um, you know, the Linux kernel and FreeBSD or GCC and Clang, um, to encourage innovation to keep happening and so that people can try out different things and go in, go in different ways. Um, and at this point, Clang and GCC, um, are pretty much neck and neck for performance and for error messages and, and things like that. So really there's just some, some different aspects, um, that one is, is better in or, or the other is, is better in. Um, and a lot of, um, what we're really interested in in FreeBSD, a lot of research areas, uh, Clang really, so really shines there. Uh, Clang, what's GCC is, the, is like the compiler. What's Clang then in, in this chain? So Clang slash LLVM is the, the compiler uh, in, in that family. Okay, yeah. I sorry I had I had to ask that question. And obviously we saw in the browser wars they you know when IE won, it was just stagnation until Firefox came along. So so can you explain to me the for, for people not familiar what what the different variants of BSD are? How you know I think a lot of our contributors will be familiar with, like you got Debian, you got Fedora. Can you just give us a, I, I know distributions isn't the right words, but variants of BSD and why free SB, free BSD is the best, obviously. <laughs> so uh, there, there are three main, um, well-known, uh, BSD distributions, um, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD. Yeah. And then there's another, um, another set of ones that are, are a little bit, um, less popular perhaps, um, or newer. So they haven't had as much time to develop. And this is things like Dragonfly BSD, yeah. um, which split off from the, the FreeBSD project. Um, and there's this sort of meme that, uh, dates from the early days of, of the BSD community that OpenBSD was focused on security. NetBSD was focused on portability and FreeBSD was focused on performance. Um, and, and I mean, I think, you know, that's, there's a grain of, of truth to that. Um, you know, the, the, these sorts of, of memes don't, uh, don't start for no reason, but, um, all of the projects now 
our focus or our uh, put effort into all, all of the areas, uh, of course. And so it's not fair to say that no other BSD cares about security or no other BSD cares about portability. So FreeBSD, we've been doing lots of um, interesting security research in, in ways that will show up in the future. Um, and we've been looking at ex- uh, expanding to target different platforms as well. So we've brought up um, 64-bit ARM in FreeBSD recently, and we're, we've um, we've just completed uh, the kernel support now for our uh, RISC-V port. And so um, you know, we're, we're really interested in, in looking at other architectures as well now. FreeBSD is by far, uh, I think, the largest in terms of, I mean, if you want to call it market share. Um, but all of the, the, the BSDs have unique attributes and uh, a set of really loyal followers who are uh, are focused on each of them. So I, it's not like there's any sort of rivalry between us. Um, we're all sort of in the same family um, and just have have a slightly different approach to some things. Okay. Um, could I, for instance, uh, take FreeBSD, pop it on my laptop and expect to be able to do my daily grind? Yeah, I think it's, uh, broadly speaking, that's um, that's the case. There's a derivative of FreeBSD called PCBSD, yeah. uh, which is designed for for exactly that. It's designed to be an end-user uh, focused. So when you say derivative, do you mean that it's a separate project, or is it is it uh, under the umbrella of FreeBSD? Uh, it it is. It's not part of the FreeBSD project per se, but PCBSD really is. Uh, it's FreeBSD under the hood. Yeah. Really, what uh, the, the way I think about it is, I kind of think about it as um, opinionated FreeBSD. So, in other words, it is it's FreeBSD, but instead of saying you can use this or this or this um, window manager, or you can use this or this or this, it's sort of uh, all the choices have been made and it's it's re- set up and ready to go. You don't need to look through all kinds of configuration options and try and figure things out. Um, it's it's ready to to use out of the box. Okay, fantastic. Um, we just came out of a uh, presentation by um, Leonard Pottering and uh, with the, his system D and stuff. Uh, do you have any opinions on that? <laughs> so uh, I, I'd like to thank Leonard for um, for system D because it has certainly brought a lot of focus to the the BSD community now. Um, We've been picking up a lot of interest from people who are um, perhaps upset about the way the Linux uh, world has developed with SystemD. Um, I think there there are actually a lot of really good ideas in something like SystemD, um, and I think we've you know we've been looking at um, when I say we, I mean the FreeBSD project. People in the FreeBSD project have been looking at different kinds of um, of equivalent. Startup technologies, so things like LaunchD. Someone has tried a port of of that for FreeBSD, and there's a few other um, projects with exploring similar I- ideas. Um, I think it's it's fair to say that there's a lot of value in something like that yeah. in a end user focused um, desktop or or laptop type uh, operating system. Um, I think it's it's a bit of a challenge for us in the FreeBSD world because a lot of systemd related components are becoming critical required pieces of the free software desktops uh, story now. And so what, you know we we're going to have to follow suit in some of those um, with some of those things just to have a working working desktop remaining on FreeBSD. Um, but that said, I think you know there's um, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good ideas and some more questionable ones. And I think 
the uh, as is the case with with the BSDs, will take a perhaps slightly conservative um, and careful view of of the way this is developing and, and see what is uh, the best long-term approach for our, our user base. Okay, very, very politically <laughs> tactfully said, if I may, may say so. Before I get on to uh, talking about the foundation, you did mention there about the uh, free desktop um, projects. And I I don't know, I get the sense that in the last few years that doesn't seem to be as important, not only to the distros, but to the various different people seem to be doing their own thing and going off, pursuing their own goals. Is, is that something that you as a project would, would like to focus more on that, you know, consolidating the start menus that, you know, the file menus is uh, Tatu, who's been one of our hosts here on HBR has been long lamenting the fact that you go to different on the same system, you have 20 different file dialogues. Should they not all be the same or? Yeah, I, I, I think that is, um, uh, certainly that is something that free, uh, software desktop, the free software desktop community, um, could do a, uh, a much better job of, of consolidating those kinds of things. Um, we're, FreeBSD, we're, we're very much the small fish in that, uh, that community. And I think we're, we're not really in a position to try and uh, drive those sorts of changes um, significantly right now. Uh, for the longest time, there's been this impression that no one even uh, used uh, a desktop environment on FreeBSD. It was, um, you know, we, we started um, recently trying to talk to some of these other communities and reopen those those lines of communication because FreeBSD had long been, or the BSDs in general, had sort of, uh, generally speaking, been keeping to themselves going to BSD conferences rather than broader free software and open source conferences. And, and we've, we've made a conscious effort, a concerted effort now to try and come to these sorts of things. That's why I'm at FOSDEM here, is to try and um, make contacts with, with people and have those open up those sorts of discussions again. So you're from the FreeBSD Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about that? What they, you know, how it's organized is an elected position and stuff. So the FreeBSD Foundation is a US 501c3 nonprofit. It's entirely funded by donations. Um, and so that's corporate donations and, uh, donations from individuals. Um, typically our budgets hover around a million dollars a year now. Uh, and that's, that's a fairly recent thing. We, we had a much smaller budget, um, until the last couple of years and we received a very generous, um, donation from Jan Koom, the, uh, founder of WhatsApp. And, um, uh, and so we've, we've been able to expand what we, we do with the money that we, we raise. Um, the foundation spends money on, Supporting BSD conferences, um, sending BSD develop, FreeBSD developers to conferences like this one, um, outside of the original BSD sort of communities. Um, the foundation spends money on legal support for the FreeBSD project and we've ramped up, uh, some funded project development over the last couple of years as well. Okay. Very good. And, um, what are you hoping to achieve here at the conference? So I'm, I really want to try and make some contacts with other people in the free software world um, that have 
goals and uh, projects that align with sort the sorts of things that we want to do in the in the FreeBSD project. And so one of the the really interesting ones for me at at the moment is the effort on reproducible builds. And so the Debian a uh, couple of Debian people have been driving this project recently. Um and it's something that we've had a, an interest in in FreeBSD for quite a while as well. Um but being able to have those conversations face to face, it's it's much much more effective to to figure out that hey, we have a lot of commonality here we we want the same things uh, and we can um decide to work together on on achieving the goals there yeah let's say uh debian and freebsd are not a million miles away from each other when it comes to stability and uh and uh openness i guess yeah um it's i've i've had a few meetings with with some debian people and um you know there's there's a lot of commonality and a lot of uh shared goals between between uh, us and I, I hadn't realized actually that um how much that was the case yeah they they were trying to run a, a bsd kernel for a while uh, i'm not sure last year i was talking to them they were having some trouble finding developers to help out with that yeah i'm i'm actually uh, familiar with that project it's the the debian gnu slash kfree bsd uh project <laughs> and it, it's actually i i find it very very interesting uh I, I'm I'm not 100% convinced um, that there are a large number of practical applications for it, but I think it's it's a um, it, it's really interesting to me to uh, sort of uh, combine aspects of um, FreeBSD, the FreeBSD kernel, with the the entire um, uh, GNU uh, Linuxy kind of user land, uh, and for anyone who's coming from the Debian world and is used to apt and, and all the, that sort of environment. Uh, I think it's really interesting that you can just bring up that same environment on, on a FreeBSD kernel and FreeBSD, um, has a container technology that's been around for, for a long time called jails. Um, and what's really interesting is that I can run a Debian installation in a jail on my FreeBSD laptop. Oh, cool. Um, listen, I won't hog uh, more of your time. Is there anything else that uh, we should have covered? Uh, I think that's that's probably it, but uh, I would definitely encourage people to give PCBSD or FreeBSD a try and uh, uh, take it for a spin. I think you might find that you you uh, are surprised by uh, what FreeBSD can do. Excellent. Hi, everybody. This is Ken. I'm at the Matrix stand, and I'm talking to... Odval Levas. Hi, so what is Matrix other than a movie? Uh, well, it's an uh, open standard uh, describing a communication protocol. Um, I mean, all we're doing is basically sending uh, JSON objects over HTTP. It's pretty easy. Um, but what we want to create is an ecosystem where any app can talk to any other app. So we have a uh, decentralized network of many servers, all of which can um, talk to, uh, to each other. So basically, if you have uh, your own server, which you can uh, download a code and run yourself and join the, the federated network, and uh, everyone is connected to that server, You're, you know your data stays on that server. But once you have more people from other servers in a in a group chat room, um, we then federate that that uh, data around and share it. Um, so it's completely decentralized. Um, in our main room, uh, for example, there's about 300 servers that are uh, have joined about 2,000 users of those. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're whenever you send a message, that that message gets uh, you know stored on three hundred diff- different servers rather than on a single server. And when you say message, are we talking voice, text, data, video? Yeah, I mean, all we're sending is uh, JSON objects, so you can send whatever you want. Um, we're kind of focusing on messaging and voice and video because 
one, it's a very fragmented space. Like every you know, single application is a silo, and they don't talk to each other. But also, um, it, it is a um, nice example to talk about. I mean, we can do this. You can use matrix for something like IoT data, or you know, whatever data you want to send. If you have a program that needs to send some uh, commands or some data, you can you can use matrix for that. I mean, it doesn't have to be a chat platform, but it, it lends itself well for that domain as well. So, do you have like any out of the box replacements for something like Skype, Skype, or? Yeah, I mean, you can literally take our code on, on, on GitHub and uh, you go to matrix.org and just download it from there. Uh, it runs as a sort of replacement for RC, if you like, or something like Slack. It does, you know, group chat, private rooms, public rooms. Uh, we do web and video call over uh, WebRTC. Uh, we have, um, uh, we're using FreeSwitch for conferencing, so you can have, you know, we have your team syncs over our, our own room. Um, we support end-to-end encryption, so you can literally have your own server and encrypt all the data you're sending, um, which is, you know, you can make sure you read our, our server code uh, to make sure you trust it, or you can write your own server and use that. Um, so it's completely open, it's uh, free software, and uh, yeah, um, we, all we want for is for more people to use it. Okay, is, are you a company or a foundation, or how are you making money, or how are you supporting the project? So Matrix.org is set up as a non-profit organization, um, and um, we are working on this full-time and we're sponsored by our parent company who I guess is uh, looking at this as a R&D um, project and you know once it's f- successful we can start having a uh, hosted solution and we can charge for that with the support and you know, the Red Hat model um, yeah so uh, it's completely free all the software is uh, Apache 2 licensed so you can literally take it and use it in any way you want and who's your parent company let's give them a shout yeah it's uh, Amdocs uh, a big multi-international company um, they do different things for us uh, than, than what we do, but um, uh, it's really cool that they've decided to sponsor us for doing this project. So. Awesome. So could, could I, um, how easy is this to install? Say I'm able to install a server. Um, how do I get the server? So yeah, this should be really a nice to use instructions. Uh, the server is currently written in Python. Uh, if it's not easy to install, please let us know because it need, needs to be as easy as possible. There is a Debian image, uh, you know, there's a repository even. Um, yeah, it should really be just be going to image.org on, on GitHub, following the readme and, uh, you know, to take about five minutes maximum. Okay, and um, my daughter was Skyping me last night. She's fairly technical, but uh, would she be able to install a client by herself? Yeah, she definitely should. I mean, a client uh, is, is really easy to install. It's literally just a JavaScript client, or you, know, you can have a command line clients. In fact, there's many clients you can use, uh, but the one we've been working on is called Vector. It's on vector.im, and uh, it's just a, a React JavaScript. Um, so you can use the one we have on vector.im, or you can install your own and connect to any of your, your own server or create a user on the matrix.org server. Um, yeah, it should be really easy to use. Um, and it has, you know... You can literally do set up a call uh, like you would do in, in Skype by clicking a button, and it would, you know, reach out to any other Matrix-enabled client. Um, so you could take the call on your phone or on your browser, or even in in uh, you know um, other services that we have bridged into. Um, and we want to bridge into everything that has an API, basically. So currently we have a bridge to IRC, so you can talk to IRC users. We have a bridge to Slack. We have a bridge to XMPP. We basically just want everyone to be able to talk to everyone else without having to worry about which app they're on. And how do you handle all the security implications of all of that? Um, so all the uh, security is just uh, done over TLS from the service to server, but obviously, as I mentioned, we have our own um, implementation and end-to-end encryption implementation called OLM, um, which uh, is based on or is similar to the uh, uh, Axolotl um, algorithm written by the Tech Secure guys. Um, so you can literally take uh, use that and encrypt all the data you're sending. Um, 
and because you you can run your own server, you can completely trust that the data will you know uh, be encrypted all the way. How can somebody get involved in the project, or is it limited to your your own team? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, it's uh, we are an open source project. I mean, we're we're a few guys being paid to work on it, but obviously we we welcome contributions massively. We have tons of things to do. If you want to help, uh, the first thing you can do, and the best thing you can do, is just to use it, like. Use our vector.im um, client or any other client. Write your own client. Come and talk to us. Run your own server. Basically, anything you know using Matrix uh, is is amazing. Um, we're sort of we just want more people's uh, feedback and experiences, and then you learn from them what they want, and hopefully we can add that to it. But uh, we already had lots of contributions. We have people adding like usability fixes, uh, adding their own uh, auth um, packages, so you can use something like LDAP instead of uh, having. Um, so it's really good to see the support from the open source community. We do a, um, a monthly show where you know we go on to Mumble and we record the session. Is that something that I could replace? Not that Mumble is open source, obviously, but we've had some issues with the client. It might be nicer just to go, here's a URL if you ever want to join. Yeah, I guess you could do that. I mean, we um, you, you could set up a room and everyone... I mean, it is kind of like a PubSub subscription. Right? So you, um, you, you have a room, so you post stuff into that room and everyone in... Who are interested in that data, you know, just have uh, join that room. So, yeah, you could use it for something like that. And then I can record the conversations. Um, you would probably have to uh, write a small bot or something that would do that for you. Uh, but it's definitely something uh, that should be easy to add. Um, we already have something similar with the uh, VUC group. I don't know if you're familiar with, but basically, we've already bridged into that. It's a, it's a sort of Friday chat show uh, every. Um, Friday at seven, I think, and uh, yeah, so you can you can join that, which is usually on on RC, but you can join that via Matrix um, as well. Very good. So, anything new coming up this year, or? Yeah, we got we have a lot of things to to that we're working on. Uh, we just sort of finished uh, guest access, which means you can actually use uh, go into a Matrix room without uh, signing up. Um, you obviously don't get the full features, but it's really nice. So you don't you, you can try it before you you know sign up and all that stuff. Um, uh, we are, so I mentioned end-to-end encryption. The work is done, but we ha- still haven't pushed into all the clients, um, and that's sort of next thing, and I think will be a really big uh, value add, um, you know, literally your own en- encrypted uh, encryption system. Um, it's sad that we need it, but there you go. Sorry? It's sad that we need it, but there you go. Well, that's true. Um, I mean, other things we're working on is to make our... Uh, the client we're working on, I mean, there's tons of clients, but the client we're working on, which is called Victor, make it really nice and easy, because, I mean, it's nice to have lots of functionality, but it also needs to be really usable and, you know, sexy to, to use it. And hopefully we're getting there. It's a lot. We've done a lot of CSS and JavaScript work in the last few months. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any feedback you guys have would be really good. Um, we, we, you know, we, 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 we get a bit blind when you're working on a project for so long, so, you know, it's really good to have uh, fresh uh, impressions from new, new users. Okay, hopefully I'll do that this year. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the show. I'm at the Brain Duino table and your name is? My name is Willy Doring. And what is Brain Duino? Brain Duino is a project where you have a shield for the Arduino Uno. Yep also for the Arduino Pro Mini that you can use uh, to record brainwave activity and bring it to a computer to have a mirror to your mind. I actually must admit I read up about this and you have like a, um, do they call them hats or not hats? Uh, Headsets? 
can. Uh, so like it's it's uh, basically um, like just very comfortable way of uh, attaching the electrodes to the surface of your head. Yeah. So right now you're wearing a like a headband. Yeah. How, what does that feel like? So um, it, it's actually very. Um, like I said, it's 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 actually comfortable. It's just um, uh, it has to lay on the surface of your skin, and uh, so this like silver chloride electrodes, so they work dry. Yeah. Usually, if you do a EEG electroencephalography recording, yep. you need uh, gel or something. Yeah. Um, to have a good uh, skin con uh, contact condition. Yeah. But the way this is uh, used, and the the amplification, the amplifier setup uh, from the hardware is uh, very special in this case. Um, Uh, different than other people do it, um, but so this works pretty well with dry electrodes also. So you just you can just um, put it on and sit and uh, it so like, it's like a, uh, it, it's a I don't know what that rubber. Ah yeah. So like this is the the old version we're using it, but yeah. now we this one uh, is like on his head. I'm just taking it off with. It's from the designer um, in in Berlin. She made this for us, and so like this is very comfortable to wear. It's uh, like cashmere and it has also felt. And, um, and so it's got one, two, three, four, five different. Uh, you could imagine them as buttons. Yeah, it, it's soft, comfortable metal buttons. And it's actually the same principle, also. Like actually, uh, I didn't notice that. I thought that was just a head, uh, hairband. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So like, yeah, it's the same principle, like um, like uh, buttons, maybe from a jacket or something. Yeah, those uh, you know clip-on buttons that you have on the uh, military type of uniforms, or the clip-in yeah. with the two wires that you push the. Um, a, a sort of metal pin in in onto it, so that's how they're attached. Right. So you can take those off and wash it, I guess. Um, yeah. This is yeah. Right. This is the the thing. We, that's why we developed this. So you can um, after time you use it for a couple of uh, times, and then you can just uh, hang it out actually. And uh, because like a natural material, it, it stays actually very clean for a long time. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, but this like the let's say second generation and the third generation is we have um, want to integrate. Whoa. This one actually. <laughs> This is a lot of uh, a lot more uh, beta, I think. Yeah, it looks like very hacky, but uh, we we actually had it running. Also, we have the right over there is also a different device yeah. um, like this. Um, so, but here we have active electrodes. That means it's very short wire, and so you don't because like a uh, like a cable or something is like an antenna. Yeah. So you so you would wear this like a headband on your head, and then there's a cable running down. Yeah. So what you're doing now is bringing the electronics into the headband. Bringing, okay. making everything just in the headband here. Yeah. Would be a slightly heavier, I imagine. Um, yes. So, but that's the thing right now. Um, so we're working on it. I'll take photos of this and put them yeah, into the so show notes. There's, yeah. There's also the other one. Um, so we want to make this uh, even smaller, like smaller components. Uh, but th of, this, of course, has to be going to a manufacturer for yeah. this, and so that's why we're planning to make a Kickstarter in roughly two months. And uh, so we can make it smaller, make it more affordable. Because right now Masahiro, um, he's been developing this over 30 years. Yeah. And uh, now he, he's opened the technology. And uh, But he has to do a lot of soldering. And a lot of people ask him to do this. But of course, you can imagine, uh, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that's why we want to make, uh, yeah, like just produce maybe a thousand devices. So like then he doesn't have to solder so much. <laughs> Good plan. Good plan. And yeah, but basically it's. Uh, so with the sensors, then you get what? What with the sensors? What does it actually measure? So it's really so like depending on where you put the electrodes, it's really the principle is called electroencephalography, and it has been done. It's a brain imaging, has been done since the 20s. Yeah. And um, so it's there's a good understanding of a certain 
brain functions. And so what we can do, for instance, is uh, to learn, to, to optimize, or to become aware of my own brainwave activity. And um, by doing that, so I can, I can make a training to maybe calm down my mind or to, to focus, to learn how to focus better. Um, this is like a replacement for, you know, a lot of children, they get uh, Ritalin. This is um, a chemical. And um, so they found out you can have the same effects actually with neurofeedback training if you stay on it and um, so yeah this is really um, this really ins um, ins inspires me to work on this project and also you can do you can for instance control a robot or something if you imagine left and right hand movement uh, this works with a very high accuracy actually um, then you have to place the electrodes of course to the to the motor cortex so not in the here in the frontal lobe but a little bit more higher but uh, you can also like This is a flexible setup, so you can, like, this is the one we're shipping that you can either have this with a main board. So we're looking at a um, a board that will fit over an Arduino, is it? Um, so so, yeah. Uh, so you can uh, connect connect with um with the Arduino Pro Mini or no this, yeah. And then so this is a main board. Yeah. So like, if you want, it's to about the size of a pie, I guess. Yeah. If you wanted to use it in a box with a cable, you can do that. Or you say you want to make a, a headband with all the electronics around. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so the customer or the, the people who want to have it, they can choose by themselves what they want to do, actually. Okay, and you take this, um, you take the, the, uh, the signals and uh -huh. you process them using what? The, the processing? Ah, okay, it's a di digital uh, signal processing. So um, the way we do it right now is, uh, so we have like uh, waves. And how many times does a wave go up and down per second yeah. is uh, the frequency. And then also, how big is this wave? Is the amplitude? And so, what we can do is uh, we can unmix the signal and make it useful for, for us. So, like, um, we can also make a statement: How awake are you? Are are you drinking a lot of coffee, or did you do sport? Are you almost falling asleep? You know, this is very um, easy or very simplistic uh, statement, but it can be very complex mm -hmm. um, depending how we unmix the signal. We can also unmix this um, spatially. So, like. Frontal lobe, motor cortex, sensory cortex. Says he looking at the presentation, which we'll link to in the show notes. Sorry? Is your presentation available on the internet? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get a link and put it into the show notes after. Yeah, yeah. sure, okay. okay. Um, so this is just saying, like, uh, it's just an example how, how we can process, process this and make it useful for us. And um, so as I said, like, you can think about moving your limbs and we can detect that. Or you have, like, some sort of, like, the P300 means... You um, show some some pictures, maybe something that is relevant for you, or you can make like a spell computer. Let's say you think about the letter D, and it goes A, B, C, and then D. Ah, and you can detect you were thinking of this letter. So this is also for people who have like this uh, locked-in syndrome who cannot yeah. move. And then you have a uh, this this uh, brain-computer interface, something you can use the Brainduino actually, and then you can communicate with the outside world. So like for hacking um, accessibility issues, I, I guess I see a lot of. You mentioned uh, um, replacement for brain issues, but also for people who are um, have mobility issues, and uh, uh, yeah, and also um, like I think there will be like a new generation of computer games actually because uh, so like this will not ultimately uh, maybe depending on the game design you can um, either still have a game controller, but then you can um, make the experience of the game. Uh, even more deeper or more uh, customized actually how, the way you feel you know change things in the game environment depending on your mood 
um, which is very interesting, I think. Uh, like, imagine you do like the perfect horror game. So every time you re relax too much. No, no, <laughs> I don't want too much. No, okay, go on. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it could be also the opposite. You know, like yeah. every time you feel in a safe place. Yeah, then you have like little bunnies hopping around yeah. or something. You can trigger this maybe with a with a headset actually. Yeah. So it's basically allowing you to start using this uh, the electrical signals in in our brains um, to. Do cool stuff, yeah. basically. Go hacking. Now, how you're going to be doing a Kickstarter to get this off the ground? Can you give me more info on that uh, costs and stuff? Yeah, um, when it's going to be? Yeah, so because yeah, we have to do a lot of um, processing and a lot of organization right now. Um, so yeah, we plan to do this at least uh, yeah, well, let's say in two months, around yeah. this time, or maybe three months, but uh, definitely still this year, and uh, uh, I mean still the first half so the thing is yeah we're still in the process um, so now we have a manufacturer and now we also have to think about because the nicest thing is if we order something you order this brand new and you can just start from the box you can just uh, plug it in and then start so that's why we have to think about um, a casing that's still we're, we're processing right now um, and and yeah so and then Hopefully, yeah, we have um, also some nice, um, like, we have advice from uh, Mitch Altman, um, the, like, the, like the founder of the hackerspace in, in San Francisco, uh, Noisebridge. So he is helping us because he also did, like, a lot of open source uh, hardware projects. Um, and, yeah, we're very confident. It was really nice. He's good, uh, good lect lecturer and uh, uh, advisor. Yeah. There's one thing that concerns me a little or that you may have an issue with, and that's uh, FDA approval or... I am. Uh, because you're moseying into the coming very close to medical device here right um, and that's also the, the bold claim that we make that we yeah. actually are on, on the medical grade but of course it needs the certificates and yeah for that sense I mean that it is an open source project but uh, for that sense we also founded a company so like we can at least provide the service to make uh, to make uh, get uh, certificates and uh, but so you would think of trying to get an FDA approved yes so, I mean, in the beginning, of course, right now, it's just more focused on for the hacker scene. It's for the hacker scene. And so, like, um, of course, and, and it, so, like, maybe it could be a stretch goal. But for now, it's just uh, we show that we, we will bring this device and you can do uh, things at home. But, of course, we don't make the medical claim. No, no. Uh, officially, uh, yeah. And you shouldn't do either because <laughs> yeah. you get sued for that. Yeah. Um, you, you need to come up with a new word. Uh, can you tell me a bit background of the project, the licensing, uh, who's involved, who's funding it, that sort of thing? Yeah. So um, right now, actually, we we are four people. Uh, that is um, uh, me. Uh, so I'm like a um, computer scientist, and I've also done uh, research in neuroscientific field, uh, dealing with EEG classification. Um, then we have uh, Robert. He's right now doing the the processing, the and uh, talking to the manufacturers, and and uh, yeah, we're trying to get also like a European funding a little bit to just to um, yeah because right now we're living out of the uh, own po pockets the whole time <laughs> um, and then uh, yeah Masahiro like he's really uh, the essential uh, hardware part because like his this is um, all the research uh, all the development he's been doing for 30 years now um, so he keeps uh, testing also new amplifier um, setup and and yeah, then there's also Silver um, right, right there. Then uh, he's he's helping Masahiro also with the hardware, and uh, yes, yeah, so, and also we want to make uh, connect the hardware with the software the best it can yeah. can get actually. Um, yeah, then this is um, yeah, and so and like the software. 
And the hard, the, do you have the... Is the hardware open source? Uh, yes. So, sorry, about the, about the licensing. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, so, this, uh, the, the Brainduino, um, this is all open source, and uh, right now it's the MIT license. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, maybe we're not sure. Maybe we're gonna do GPL, but uh, we haven't decided yet. But like for now, it's MIT, so you can download the schematics. And um, so for the software right now, I still have to do some cleanup, but I will soon put this on the GitHub also. Uh, so it's gonna be also open source. Um, and uh, oh, and it's gonna be whatever the open license. I I sorry, I didn't decide yet what would could be the best for. But it's software. gonna be a free software. Yes, license. yes, okay. that's my yeah. That was the answer I was looking for. Okay. Um, <laughs> anything else that I missed, or um, no? Yeah, very. Uh, we are very. Um, we're we're lo looking for call for participation because yeah, it's an open source project, and we still need like people who want to do like game development or, or you know like neuro gaming like um, the gamification of training your your brain waves. Yeah. Um, so like we need we need still content like this is really some things uh, we miss, and so we're really looking for hackers or designers, people who would like to. Uh, yeah, make some content and yeah. There's a, I think there's a lot of different aspects with it because you you got the hardware, you got the fashion yeah. even uh, side to it. You've got the um, the real hardcore electronics and you've got the software program. Plus you got the medical aspect. So yeah. I'm sure there's something for everybody on this it's, project. Yeah, really, it's, it's so much work to do. So that's where I really we reach out to, to people. That's where we came to Fostem and um, yeah, because we we think it's already a great tool. But of course, yeah. There's work to be done, yeah. <laughs> do you know how much it's going to cost, or do we have any ideas? Yeah, so right now... Oh, fine. Yeah, so um, if you order the parts right now, um, it's something like maybe $150. Um, but, yeah, if you make it assembled and everything, we hope to, yeah, of course, with casing everything, maybe it's going to be something around 200 a little bit more. Um, but which is, I think, which is fair. Um, also, like, compared to the few de consumer devices out there right now... Um, yeah, and this is. Believe me, if you've worked in the medical field, this is this is peanuts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Of course. Um, maybe the medical certificate is a whole different thing. But uh, no, right now we focus on on making uh, just a hacker product. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of the show. I'm standing in front of the Butter Knife project, and I'm talking to. Hi, I'm Lauri, and uh, uh, we're uh, hosting a butter knife booth here at Fosdem. And basically, uh, I've been working for the past uh, year or even more uh, on the uh, migration project uh, in Tallinn. So Tallinn is the capital of Estonia, and uh, the Tallinn Education Board decided to uh, try out uh, Linux on the school computers. And the... Um, 4,000 computers that we shipped in uh, September, they are now dual boot. So there's Windows and uh, Ubuntu 14.4 installed on them. Okay. And my task was to prepare a uh, Ubuntu image for those uh, machines. And as part of the whole migration project, um, I developed this tool called uh, Butterknife. You can check it out at butterknife.rocks. So it's, it's the website. <laughs> Put a knife on rocks. Exactly. Awesome. So these are the, these new hipster uh, top-level domains. And um, what basically we're doing is that um, I'm, I'm preparing the template of the operating system on a server inside the Linux container. 
And then I basically use Butterknife uh, snapshots capability to take a snapshot of the container. And after that, it becomes uh, available on the network using the Butterknife server. On the uh, target machines, I boot up the Butterknife provisioning image, and uh, the provisioning image basically downloads the template on the target computer and, uh, of course, sets up a partition table, file systems, etc., and then uh, downloads this uh, ButterFS snapshot there. Afterwards, uh, the bootloader is set up, and uh, within 15 minutes, your computer is basically ready to be used. And as a cherry on the top, uh, we also provide multicasting capability. So uh, the basic idea of the Butterknife was that uh, I cannot, couldn't make any assumptions about the local infrastructure. So as a fallback, you can basically use a memory stick to boot up 30 computers. You can use a single memory stick to do that. And uh, you can have one computer which is downloading the snapshot from the server and uh, broadcasting it onto the local network segment using multicast. I personally am a big fan of multicast. It's awesome. But uh, can you explain to people what multicast is just as a... So multicast basically avoids the overhead of downloading uh, the snapshot into each individual computer. And uh, by using multicast, the the same packet is essentially transferred to all of those uh, computers in a classroom. So essentially... You could deploy, um, let's say, 10 gigabyte image on a gigabit LAN within like two minutes. It's it's ultra fast. Yeah, excellent. So it's it's also a way for just provisioning, uh, mass provisioning of systems. So universities or um, companies that have got new machines in, they can just blast the uh, blast the desktops. Exactly. So it's mainly targeted for desktops. For servers, you already have a bunch of different tools that can achieve that. But uh, for desktops, I couldn't find anything uh, that would make my life significantly easier. We also provide scripts to uh, uh, join the machine into Active Directory domain. So after deployment, you don't even have to create any local user accounts. Just uh, in the menu, select Join Domain, enter the credentials, and boom, it's uh, joined to a domain. And, uh, of course, uh, if you have Puppet infrastructure in place, you can uh, use that. I have uh, the template is connected to the Puppet server, so it reg- it's regularly updated. And after the deployment, the machines also pop up in the uh, Puppet Master, so I can continue managing them from there. And this was developed entirely by yourself? It's actually a really tiny project. <laughs> it looks awesome. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. It's like simple ideas put together that uh, help you to cut down the deployment time significantly. Uh, quite a lot of our guys uh, work in the education sector, so this is probably on the edge of their seat. And that's actually where I'd like to ask that. Uh, if, you have, uh, if you have a big uh, computer park somewhere, next uh, number I'm targeting would be, well, 40,000. If you have a, a big computer park, just uh, send me an email and uh, maybe we can uh, have some, sign of, some kind of business, ag- uh, business uh, agreement and we could do cooperate and do something together. Excellent stuff. Anything else coming up this year that I need to know about? Or um... The cool feature that we will be adding to the Butterknife is a online incremental upgrade feature. So basically, you have the computer running, the uh, new snapshot will be downloaded in, the, downloaded in the background, and we are doing incremental upgrade, which means like, if you have this uh, image, is like 10 gigabytes, we will only download the differences apply it to the file system, rearrange the bootloader, and then the icon pops up says, your software has been updated, please reboot into the new snapshot. And what happens to uh, user files, or are those all stored on the network? Exactly, uh, good question. So, for the home folder is uh, in a separate sub-volume which uh, is persistent, 
And same goes for the uh, uh, Samba and uh, Kerberos credentials. They are stored in a persistent sub-volume. Everything else gets wiped out, and if you have user accounts in an Active Directory-compatible domain, that could be also Samba domain, then you don't have to worry about user accounts. So everything will stay, stay as it is. You can even like migrate from 32 to 64 bits and do all sorts of funky stuff that otherwise would not be possible. Excellent stuff. Um, just before I go, I'll uh, have you enter in some details of the project onto, uh, for the show notes and um, so people can contact you there. Thank you very much. And I'm talking to? Elizabeth Flanagan. Hi, Elizabeth. What are you here showing off? Um, I am showing off a um, semi-working hurdy-gurdy, or a villaru, or there's a few different names for it. Uh, it's an 11th century music instrument, but this is a modern-day takeoff of that. So can you describe uh, what a traditional one would be? There's a wheel or a crank at one end, and then... So a traditional hurdy-gurdy is essentially a continuously bowed keyed violin. Um, It has a wooden wheel that is cranked. There is rosin on the wheel. The wheel touches a set of strings. There's melody strings, drone strings, and a set of strings called trumpets, which uh, can be used to create uh, a tempo. And the melody strings go through a key box and are uh, fretted with these things called tangents that basically push up against the string to shorten the string length. Um, This works substantially differently. Um, Which brings us to why you're a FOSTEM, I guess. Yes, it it brings us... uh, So this has a minnowboard max in it. It is... Well, for a start, let me describe what this is. It's like shaped like a little boat about the size of your arm it's got the traditional crank at the end and then it's all uh, transparent plastic and really nice designs at the top so from there sure um so on the crank end we have a uh, dc permanent magnet motor that is uh, a crank is connected to the output shaft so when you crank a dc motor what happens it produces electricity this can produce, as far as I can tell, by cranking it as fast as I can go, something around 42 volts. Um, it runs into a voltage divider and a protection diode that drops that down to about 5 volts. That's um, this device here? Well, no, 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 no. That is right here. This right the, on the back of yeah, the, right so on the back of the motor. Right on the back of the motor, yep. um, And that goes into an analog uh, input. And that essentially controls the volume. So when you think about a how you play a violin, if you bow very lightly, you have a or very slowly, you have a very low uh, uh, volume to it. If you bow very quick, it's a lot more. I would have thought it's, it's yeah okay yeah it's a lot lo- it's a lot louder. So then what this brings us to is the key box here. Which, um, She's uh, lifting up the cover. There are about 24 keys here. And instead of having 24 separate inputs, uh, there is a two uh, flexible resistors that basically the uh, backs of the keys bang up into and change the resistance of this. And this goes into one analog input. Okay, hold on, because I need to describe sure. this. So we're looking at essentially a plastic box. 
with and when you're talking about keys you're talking about musical instrument keys that would slide in and out so think of like the letter T and you push that in and it's got pins that go in and out on the inside and there are metal screws on that yep and the screws are there just there to keep these from falling out um, generally, where does it generate the resistance then if it's a plastic so these component? on the back end if you can see right back here yeah. are two flexible resistors ah I see them at the back and yeah. those are, end up getting mucked together creating resistance and depending on which key you press depends on what the resistance is so the key goes back onto these little metal strips at the back and then the resistance changes yes. but, um, can you play two of them at the same time will that double the resistance or? no they won't because um, the, the way I have them wired up it basically acts as one big resistor so um, it, it basically knows where in the resistor uh, thing it is so if you play this key this key are they it always plays the lower key so it always plays the, the key with the lowest resistance. Yes, you can press two keys because it re will recognize that, okay, two keys are hitting like on one end and on the other end. Like folks use these for position detection and etc. But because it's a stringed instrument, think about a guitar. I can fret the same string twice, but it only picks the lower fret. Yes, of course. Of does. course. Thank right. you. Duh. Okay. So the way I, uh, thank you for walking yes, me through yes. this. I'm not the sharpest tool. In no, the no, 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 that's fine. Okay. So essentially, that's uh, what's going on here. Now we're si in the, still in the process of getting some stuff working on this. So for okay, example, so we got the resistance. Where does that go then? This goes right into an analog input right here. Uh, on a what? On the board. Yeah. On what's the board? Uh, the board is a Minnow Board Max with a Calamari Lore. There we go. And it runs a distribution uh, that I work for. I work for Intel, and I work full-time on uh, the Octo Project and Open Embedded. I'm the release engineer for Open Embedded and the Octo Project. Um, and a frustrated musician and an artist at the same time. A frustrated musician, um, maintainer of the Octo Auto Builder. And like, the reason this, came all, this all came about is um, I used to play an instrument called a bow dulcimer. Uh, which is an Appalachian Mountain dulcimer. It's like, think of a mini cello. And my other hobby is motorcycles. Those don't necessarily always match up, and I got in a really serious motorcycle accident and broke my hand. So I can no longer hold a bow right. Well, that sucks. Well, uh, but I can crank. Yes. <laughs> I can crank. So when I started looking around at like what instruments I can play, I realized, okay, here's an instrument that I can play with a broken hand um, and I started calling around and all the luthiers that I was talking to uh, they were telling me four to six months for a Dulce, or for a uh, hurdy-gurdy and I was like that's great I'm not waiting that long <laughs> so I said okay you guys do this and I'm going to work on this and we'll see which one gets done first um, and then I got busy and five months later I hadn't started this yet <laughs> And I said, hmm, I better start this. So I started it, um, got it ready. I presented this at uh, Embed Linux Con, uh, Embedded Linux Conference uh, in Dublin this year. And literally, like three days later, my other hurdy-gurdy came in. So I beat, I beat a luthier, but not by much. <laughs> and can you play both, either? Uh, no, uh, poorly. poorly yes. Very, very poorly. <laughs> well, it is... 
um, I must say very beautiful to look at but then again I'm an engineer uh, but no I think it is a work of art it works on so many levels it's, it's absolutely awesome photos of this will be in the show notes uh, how did you uh, do the physical manufacturing of it? <laughs> so um, I sat there with Inkscape and I said I know what I want this to look like um, there was some online site that does I think you got distracted with the top K's for sure no actually that was easy uh, there was a um, I'm pointing out a very elaborately beautifully designed uh, floral motif with flowers or with a little bird and some flowers the, there was a uh, um, on Google Images someone had a uh, design that was open and I just borrowed that and stretched it out to fit on that yeah yeah and threw it into Inkscape um, the major problem was um, I initially designed this uh, when I was living in the States for quarter millimeter or for or quarter inch. Yeah, do you see the problem there? <laughs> quarter, quarter inch plexiglass, but the, the or quarter inch acrylic. But the thing is, is that quarter inch and six millimeter are close enough that they kind of overlap. So you can use six mil or quarter uh, inch and works fine. Yes, you just increased your tolerances. Yeah. That was obvious by design. Excellent. So, yeah, it was a design flaw that worked in my favor. Okay, thank you very much. We're at the core boot, Flash, was it? Flash ROM booth, and we're talking to... I'm Carl Daniel Heilfinger. I'm well doing a bit of community outreach right now. Yes, quite a lot actually today. It's very hard to get hold of you. We spoke to you in detail last year. We did an excellent interview, so there'll be a link to that interview here. Very quickly, what is Corebook? What is Flash ROM Elevator Pitch? Okay, the uh, management elevator pitch uh, is that Corboot is a replacement for your BIOS and EFI. It's a free firmware found on x86, ARM, MIPS, and others. Um, it's chipped by default on every Chromebook out there. So if you have a Chromebook laptop, you're using Corboot. Excellent. And FlashROM um, is essentially just a tool to write the, fla- the firmware you want to the Flash chip you want. So, for example, if you want to re- update your BIOS, you can do so under pretty much any operating system with FlashROM. You can also use FlashROM to reflash something externally, use all the various flashing hardware. You can even abuse the Raspberry Pi for that. So... Um, you can even recover bricked uh, um, laptops uh, with the help of a Raspberry Pi and Flash ROM. This is a new thing this year, is it? Um, <clears throat> we, we, we could always, uh, well, we c- can do this since a few years, but we never advertised it really. So, um, How does that work exactly? Um, the um, Raspberry Pi has an SPI bus uh, present, and Flash ROM can address that SPI bus and just talk to the Flash chip uh, over the IP, SPI bus, uh, just uh, connect your, the right pins of your Raspberry Pi to the flash chip of the target device, which has a break, uh, BIOS update or whatever, can read out the old contents, write the new contents, it's all over in a few minutes. Oh, there are people out there listening to this going, thank you, thank you. Okay, you have a list, talk to me. <laughs> So, yeah, um, he wanted to know about uh, the cool stuff um, Corboot has uh, done in the past year. And uh, I'm afraid the list is a bit too long to actually uh, list it. So um, what we did uh, is we got uh, quite a lot of new processors and chipsets supported on x86 and on ARM. 
And on ARM, um, a few new vendors have showed up. For example, Rockchip and NVIDIA have showed up. And as far as I know, they wrote the core boot support themselves. For them... Um, NVIDIA? Yes. Um, and I see you're looking at me wondering uh, if I'm still... Um, rug-free, uh, but yeah, <clears throat> the biggest point is that um, vendors notice that if they use core boot on their uh, hardware um, and then they can combine core boot with a Linux kernel and they don't have to write all the drivers twice as usually they would do with other firmware so usually they would implement a driver for their hardware in Linux kernel and then re-implement re the driver for the firmware they care about And given that Coreboot doesn't need all those drivers uh, and can reuse uh, a few MTD drivers, if you do that for NAND flash access, um, you can just run Coreboot directly um, and uh, have it execute a Linux kernel, and that saves vendors a lot of trouble and effort porting and supporting the hardware. Some vendors claimed uh, it reduced the amount of work they have to spend on a new platform in half, and that's a real benefit and the other benefit which also the ARM vendors are claiming is that their old uh, firmware support packages they created they needed uh, to support that themselves now Coreboot has some pretty good documentation so if a large uh, processor vendor wants uh, to sell small designs they don't have to support users with like prototypes of prototype runs of 400 devices themselves they just can say oh well the source code is there do what you want and if they get a design win and the production scales uh, they don't need to support those people again so it's a win-win for them yeah and so they are really happy about that and then there's also some additional chipset or processor architectures supported <clears throat> we are now moving in the MIPS direction Yes, and uh, also the experimental CPU architecture RISC-V, which is essentially a free um, instruction set architecture. Um, we do have core boot support for that as well. E even if there's not that much real hardware out there, and most of it is implemented in FPGAs, still it exists and it, uh, it's going forward. Then, um, from a more general user perspective, um, we have lots more ThinkPads supported. We have a few MacBooks supported nowadays. So, people who always say, well, ThinkPads are ugly, uh, we love MacBooks. Well, now those people can be made happy as well. So, you can turn a MacBook into a free, 100% free device? Yes, of course. Oh, with the irony of that. <laughs> Well, we, we, yeah, especially considering that this is not really what, something you expect from MacBook. Yeah, yes, exactly. And then there's also um, um, lots of more Chromebooks which were released, and given that all Chromebooks run Coreboot, uh, well, uh, it's a natural design win. Then from a um, not a directly board support point of view, we have a better code structure. We reorganize some of the code. Um, and now we have an infrastructure to test um, every commit in our repository uh, with all the hardware we support. So we have um, we have now an open uh, source uh, testing uh, software which uh, where you can hook up targets uh, to a Raspberry Pi 
and they will test each new commit and will uh, publish reports whether something failed so we know immediately if something breaks and who it was <laughs> and um, and that's actually very much needed because usually people say hey Corboot runs on a machine that's great no need to re ever reflash it because it works and uh, people then just don't track whether it still works in your versions uh, that continuous testing infrastructure really helps us a lot to ensure uh, continued trust in uh, actually running code um, is that on physical hardware or is it all physical hardware well we have uh, we also test every proposed patch on virtual hardware but on physical hardware just uh, we don't have enough machines right now in, our, in the labs in the various labs where well, before it goes live then it's Yeah, uh, so <clears throat> well, the notifications after the fact to not hold up the commits, but uh, still, I think it's pretty valuable. So at most, you have a delay of uh, something like two hours after a commit uh, where the failure or success reports show up. So that's pretty okay. okay. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, we are now doing more community gatherings. We had a official Corboot conference um, in October 2015. Uh, the great thing was that uh, quite a few vendors showed up as well and uh, we will have some more Coreboot developer meetings and conferences uh, one of them is scheduled for Embedded Linux Conference Europe in Berlin uh, in fall 2016 um, we have something which we are but just you were saying that at that event there will be a table where you can bring your laptop and they will yes um, <clears throat> Well, we have to differentiate. We, we try to uh, have a, some sort of uh, time couple between uh, the Corboot conference uh, in fall and the Embedded Linux conference so people don't have to travel across the pond twice. Yeah. Um, and we are also present now at pretty much every um, hacker event um, or uh, hacker conference or software conference. We're here at FOSTEM offering people to reflash their laptops with Corboot um, with success guarantee. Uh, we were present at Chaos Communication Congress, Chaos Communication Camp, pretty much every uh, conference in Europe uh, which has something to do with hacking or with uh, software, we are present. We have started user groups, corporate user groups to support people. Quite a few hackerspaces offer reflashing services. So yeah. I was going to bring my completely dead laptop, but uh, I thought, no, I'm not going to buggy when you're doing Fosca. Uh, well, um, If the laptop is su uh, supported by Coreboot, uh, you can just bring your laptop and ask us, uh, well, uh, can I leave the laptop here? I'll return an hour later. And you have a laptop with Coreboot. Excellent so stuff. That's uh, our sort of... Com and we have that's our way also of improving community outreach because some people are just too afraid to attempt that for themselves. And we have the experience to reflash that stuff and we know what to do when something goes wrong. So... We can guarantee you that you will leave without a brick, but rather with either the original factor BIOS restored if you dislike Coreboot for some reason or a working Coreboot installation on your hardware. Excellent. And um, there is uh, some more thing. Uh, we have the first Android device running Coreboot. Excellent. Uh, the Google uh, Chromebook Pixel C. And the firmware uh, was written by the Chrome uh, Chromebook firmware team. 
uh, which means they also have upstream pretty much all of their kernel uh, changes. So you can run a recent Linux kernel upstream with it, and you have Corboot below. So um, that's also something we're really happy and we were, where we would like the industry moving. Um, then there's also something from a security perspective. We have reproducible builds now. So regardless on which platform you, you rebuild a core boot image, even if you do it under Windows, the result will binary uh, will be binary identical to the uh, build somebody else did on something uh, completely different machine. So you can really verify that the source code Uh, matches the binary uh, which is generated at the end. So you can check the, the, the shell keys or the Yeah, um, we, we not, uh, not really check the signatures we just rebuild from the sources and if the result is uh, completely identical we know it wasn't tampered with so that's easier than doing all the signature checking um, We also have something which is interesting for people who don't have time to follow the mailing list. We have regular blog posts, uh, which are essentially this week in core boot, all the interesting developments of the past week or the past month. Uh, also, there's more outreach. And yeah, that is um, pretty much... Um, oh, yeah, and we uh, got to release uh, more versions. We had core boot version 4.0 since pretty much... A long time, and now we had version 4.1, 4.2, and we are doing regular releases. And with all the quality assurance we are now doing, um, I think uh, Corbett is in a quite better state than one year ago. It wasn't bad back then, but um, I'm now really, really happy. Yeah, you can tell actually by the amount of buzz at the hall and how difficult it has been for me to get hold of you for the last two days. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, finally, we're nearly at the end of first time. Okay, cool. Um, and so um, the other thing, uh, well, um, given that Corboot and FlashRom are uh, really linked in the sense that you need FlashRom to put Corboot to the hardware, the FlashRom project has a bit uh, slower on development. Is a bit slower on development, but there's not that much to do anymore because well, FlashRom in itself works. We are uh, now uh, have a sprint um, to merge some new features, and um, we do some more infrastructure work. Um, when we are also working on automated testing for FlashRom because in FlashRom everybody cares about reliability like with Coreboot people do not care if you are five seconds faster but they care very much that what ends up in the firmware image in the firmware flash is exactly the stuff you wanted to have there and we are currently building a testing rig for FlashRom which would do the same as what the Coreboot testing rig does so not that much news on the FlashRom front but it's also coming along nicely and people are generally happy that it's still very reliable excellent stuff thank you very much for the update and keep up the good work thank you very much and I would be happy to welcome uh, people wanting their uh, laptops flashed at the next few conferences just inquire whether we are there can I uh, on your website will there be lists of that is that something that people can we, expect we have on our website we have a list of yes uh, we have a list of upcoming conferences where we are present and usually uh, presence at the conference means we also re offer reflashing services so okay so don't be embarrassed to bring your laptop and get it flashed Probably it would be a good idea to tell us in advance how many of you are planning to come because we can't be there with like 50 people reflashing 500 laptops at the same time. But uh, yes, uh, that's a service which we officially offer. One more point? 
Yeah. Um, we uh, we also are now trying to improve community organization, not a, uh, and we are trying to start a non-profit here in Europe. Oh yeah. Um, so people can actually then donate uh, to the Corbett project that was impossible in the past, and we are trying to have this non-profit also as a uh, sort of point of contact if somebody wants to have us as a conference or something like that. Oh, very good. Yeah, okay. good idea. Anything else? No, that is it. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Hi, this is Ken. I'm at the Open Embedded Project and I'm talking to Brian Boer from Open Embedded Project. And, uh, well, we are uh, making a build system for, for building various software for uh, different devices. So we are showing uh, different devices uh, running the same software stack here. And uh, one of the devices... Uh, it's based on an ARM CPU, one is based on x86 CPU, and we have the same software made from the same software descriptions, which are part of Open Embedded. Um, major share of Open Embedded. Uh, the exact same code. Sorry? The exact same code. You're running the exact same code on. It's, it's the same code, but it is built for, for different uh, um, uh, <coughs> machine architectures. And this is something Open Embedded solves for you. Open Embedded mostly contains a lot of descriptions, where to find software, um, how to configure it, how to uh, cross-compile it, uh, how to package it in an efficient way. And uh, this is used to uh, build complete firmware images for all sorts of target devices. And in this way, since we built everything from source, you can uh, have the same uh, software stack running on different machines. Of course, on top uh, of the generic software descriptions, you have some to adapt or to make your own hardware descriptions, maybe add some uh, board support, like customized Linux kernels or uh, bootloaders. Um, but uh, uh, Everything from from the software description till the finished firmware image is solved by Open Embedded and it's done mostly automatically. Okay, very good. Um, you have some demonstrations here on the table. I think they're from other projects, but I wonder could you bring me through them? Yes, we have. Uh, well, uh, the one demo we have is uh, is. Um, showing uh, a software-defined radio device. Uh, we have one based off a quite generic uh, Intel x86 hardware. And um, it's, it's a motherboard running a software image with a software-defined radio dongle attached through USB and uh, running a graphical user interface um, for uh, controlling this uh, software-defined radio receiver uh, dongle and <clears throat> uh, the th second part of the demo is uh, a commercial uh, software defined radio device um, running the same software with the, uh, with the same user interface but um, on this completely different software platform so, um, another strong thing we sh uh, are currently showing is um, a demo of toaster which is uh, kind of web front end for, for Open Embedded, uh, which 
is used for uh, configuring, scheduling, and uh, controlling software builds. Uh, software builds are uh, quite time-consuming and, and um, um, hard to control thing because uh, uh, compiling millions of lines of codes, there's uh, a lot of uh, things that can go wrong, and uh, the front end assists you. Uh, uh, controlling this build process, uh, monitoring what is actually going on, and um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, showing showing in and, and checking uh, the the actual results, checking uh, reports of the quality assurance tools, uh, checking the results uh, of size check because you many devices you have a quite restricted uh, uh, amount of, uh, of storage space to, uh, for for your file systems and uh, things like this. And what's that program called? It's Toaster. 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 And that's part of uh, where can I find out information about that? Um, it's uh, developed under, uh, under the umbrella of the Yocta project and you can find information uh, Well, the easiest way to find information is uh, to take a look at the Octo Project website. So, how would you um, recommend people get involved in the various different projects? Um, that's pretty easy. Uh, well, uh, that's one of the one of the really nice uh, things at Open about it is you don't even have to be developer to get involved with this project. Um, major share of uh, of the work in Open about it is getting. Uh, Descriptions for, for software for for the for the builds done, and uh, these you, you uh, are made in a pretty easy human and machine readable form, um, and so almost everyone who's able to at least use a compiler or um, a build tool like AutoTools is is able to uh, to get involved into the project and get. Uh, uh, and to contribute additional stuff and um, yeah well we have we have a, we have a website we have lots of documentation and uh, uh, information how, how to get started with a, with, a, with a project in general so uh, the target audience is all sorts of uh, uh, mostly Linux running uh, embedded devices or mobile devices and so uh, the uh, by now the, uh, the the target audience for, for this for the device is, oh, the, 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 uh, the share of people could be interested in working uh, with open embedded doing custom software images building custom software for all the devices is, is pretty high okay very good Hi everybody, this is Ken, we're at Pico TCP and we're talking to... Don Peters, I'm from uh, Intelligent Systems, Altron, and standing here with Pico CP on FOSDEM yet again for another edition. Now we spoke last year, or we, uh, I spoke to the project, can you tell us what uh, Pico TCP is in very, very short? In very short? Well, take as long as you like actually, it's Hacker Public Radio, you can be four hours, awesome. I don't really care. That's also short, oh, okay. So Pico TCP is... Really, a TCP/IP stack for the small embedded devices. Yep. Um, you have PicoTCP in Linux. Yep. 
we want to put Pikachu P in everything. Yeah. Also the places where Linux doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, and it should allow you to create devices that you can easily attach to the Internet of Things and get going. And so like what we're talking about here is the full TCP IP yeah. stack. So IPv6 as well, I'm imagining. Yeah. Even IPv6, yeah. If we implement something, we go all the way. Yeah. So that's full RFC compliance, and that means also fully RFC tested. Yeah. So we do our own tests on, on, on that side. Um, so IPv6 is one thing, and sometimes there are some even more exotic ones. Um, now we're working on 6 and 2, so really going towards the Internet of Things. Yeah. And that's, yeah, then you need good IPv6 implementation for sure. Yeah. But yeah, for those who are just looking for IPv4, we have all the, the standard stuff, the, the, the TCP, the UDP, everything you want. DHCP, bah, who needs dynamic IPs? No, no it'll be fine. <laughs> um, I guess the reason you do this are the devices are smaller, smaller memory footprint. Yeah. You've got different architectures that you're going to have to support as well. Yeah, and we already do quite support quite a lot of them. Yeah. So we have a nice overview um, on that little list over there, and the audience cannot see that, but we really start all the way at the bottom with yeah. 8-bit devices, yeah. and one of our guys was eight feeling... 8-bit devices. 8-bit oh. devices. Yeah. One of our guys was feeling adventurous, and he, he tried to port it to an Atmega 128. Okay, so flash size, okay, but as soon as you start doing TCP, you need a lot of RAM too, yeah, yeah. and that's where the bottleneck is with these devices. Okay. So he just had to add an external memory device oh, okay. he could use as RAM because otherwise it didn't work. But so but, it, yeah, it fits, it fits, <laughs> yeah. it works. Then 16 bitters, yeah. also, yeah, it's part of the market is also in there. You know, the, the microchip, the TIs, all of those. And then the 32 bits, and those are the most popular for us to develop on. Yeah. Yeah. Also, certain customers coming to us mainly with 32-bit ARM microcontrollers. Um, but then we go even further. So, mainly our development is done in Linux itself. Yeah. We're using ton and top devices to just connect it to your regular networking environment in Linux. That's a tunnel and... Uh... Yeah, ton is on uh, layer Two and top is on layer one. Okay, um, then you also have VDE where you can do crazy stuff with switches and, and everything. But that's a lot of fun. Okay, back back to where we came from, the platforms. So Linux, we yeah. develop on that too, which means actually that we also work on the 64-bit devices and yeah, we can just keep on going. And do you would you need a Linux stack in order to run this or will it run as a standalone? I think that was a project that was done this year. Is to like, okay, how far can we go? So you take the standard Linux kernel, which contains a TCP IP stack, you cut off, cut off the TCP IP stack, and you put Picot CP in place. And what does that give you is that actually your standard Linux kernel becomes a lot smaller. And the TCP IP stack is a significant part of this size in the Linux stack. So by using Picot CP instead of the standard uh, stack in the Linux kernel, you could actually even put Linux on smaller devices than oh, would okay. be possible by default. If you can run Pico TCP in Linux, why not just run Pico TCP in like Debian on your regular server? Let's say that's a fun project, but there is not really a need if you have it on your regular server, saving like 100k or 200k. Yeah. 
if you have a couple of terabytes of storage, people don't really care. So it could be a fun project, but on the other hand, we're targeting the small devices. Gotcha. Uh, how did you just end up? Like, did you wake up one day as a kid going, God, I really need to get into TCPIP on a, on a low level? Uh, it was one of our colleagues, actually one of the organizers here at Fosdem, who was at a customer and he, 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 he really felt the need a bit for like, there is something lacking in this market. So either you have a full stack that contains everything but is like one solid block and you take it or you leave it or yeah you were left in the dark with maybe some commercial stacks that you'd have no idea about what they offer so we we were looking for or we found that little gap where we thought yeah we need something modular that we can easily port that everybody can start to use mm -hmm. and that's where he then just started with the project Okay, on your uh, spiel thing going across here, I see uh, open source and propri or proprietary. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Is it like open core or is it the same code base? Well, the, the and what's the license better? The license is GPL v2. Okay. Um, it's always a tough choice to choose a license, yeah. but that's what we went for. Okay. And so far, we're still happy with it. Um, this means that the entire PicoCP core with, with all the modules is totally open source released under that. Um, we have so what do I get if I go for the proprietary option? You can compile your stuff. So we have a getting started guide. Yeah. You can do all of that with what is publicly available, which means you can compile your setup. You can start running ping, TCP, um, DHCP, everything you want. Yeah. And on top of that, we have a separate repository with code that is... Um, <laughs> we, we don't feel quite comfortable yet to put it entirely in the code base. And there you will find DHCP, MQTT integrations with uh, other ones. Yeah. Also, those ones we release under under GPL v2. Okay. So you can pretty much get everything out on the internet. So why would I, okay, aside from supporting the project and doing the right thing, is there anything in the proprietary license that isn't in the? The proprietary license allows people who are not compatible with GPL v2 to actually use our stack. Okay, get it. Okay. Good, good answer, Batman. Well done. So, anything else here that you want to show me or that I missed? You feel like playing Snake? Uh, it's probably not going to work for... Oh, look, I'm winning. I've just won. <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> you're not. No, I am. <laughs> anyway, it's it's one of the things we've been working on, on uh, this year also. What does that have to do with PicoTCP? Well, actually, we've, the controllers, we've turned into PicoTCP nodes. So, they're now oh. network-enabled controllers, and you can be sitting in another room and still or play Pikachu. Yeah, then a webcam could be useful, yeah, but yeah. Um, That'd be a smidgen overkill. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is actually the end result of yeah. a of a workshop that we've been giving around Pikachu. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've been doing this mainly internally for a couple of times, also towards students who are very interested in working with it. Um, and. We've, we would like to spread this workshop even further into the world and see who else is interested. So, it's I, I have the sinking suspicion beer was involved in this uh, workflow somewhere. Well, we'd like to call them pizza and beer sessions at times. So, yeah, of course, beer was involved. But it's it's really a lot of fun. What, what comes out of these? Um, and what's that? Have you had to add anything to the controllers to get them to work? Well, because CP. Well, other than that, is you. There is not much... I mean, have you had to make any hardware modifications to get them to work? No. These are... 
we, we love our friends at Seed Studio. It's yeah. that's a Chinese company. They make great hardware, yeah. and it's really cool that these boards are like entirely containing. Everything is on there, so you have the full Ethernet um, hardware available on top of your ARM Cortex M something. I don't know which number exactly. Well, we have an LPC inside. Um, so it's a really neat development platform. Yeah. We would love to see them even cheaper, so we can really hand them out. How much are they? These are 40 or 50 euros still. Still. Yeah. I mean, now we think, you know, with the pie, you're thinking, oh god, that's really expensive now. Yes. <laughs> Whereas, like two years ago, it was, oh, it's under 200 euros. Wow, that's good. Cool. Or certain Wi-Fi platforms that you can buy these little boards for, like two euros or something. Yeah. yeah. But Wi-Fi is always a bit more difficult to develop on, so we, we, we like to have wired. It costs a bit more, but yeah. then we can really do everything. Yeah, exactly. Anything else cool that you want to show? What's, what's the light? The light? Well, there are there's some a, instructions. There's a connect There's actually a Wi-Fi chip inside yep. running, running Pico CP. This is actually the chip I was talking this about. This looks like a regular old thing that you get at the Gamma or... or uh, yeah. Uh, so, so it's... Okay, it's an external all light. All hidden inside. Oh yeah, and at the case. Hold on, I got to take a photo of this. This is plastic. So it's um, it's a it's a regular old outside light LED type thing, I guess. Put yeah. my finger in there. I'll try and get the so light in. a bit of hardware modifications allows it to control it via via Wi-Fi. So you can you can log in and then you get a web UI and you can change the colors and everything. Yeah, that, that, that always works. LEDs, we love them. So, this is one of the, the tiny Wi-Fi devices. Here we, we're bumping into some problems with licensing because it's actually an Espressif um, ESP8266 device that's, that's incredibly cheap. So one and a half euros or a bit bigger development board, four euros, you have it. But they're... Um, proprietary um, binary for for doing all the wireless stuff that's closed source, which means PicoCP is in fact not compatible with it, or they are not compatible with us. Let's call it like that. We're on FOSDEM, um, which means we cannot release this code. That sucks. That, that's really annoying because it's it's super cool. We've been trying to talk to these guys, see if there is a way out, but I suppose. If some of our community members just started emailing these guys and asking, well, maybe the Pico TCP guys would like. I'd love to buy order four million of these things. Can we, you please? We already have a couple of guys who are who are who have been asking for this, but yeah. we always have to disappoint them. So, is there anything else coming up this year that I need to know about? I think we're really going to focus more on community building. We yeah. feel this this product or, or this stack is really mature. Yeah. We have the quality. We can assure that everything stays green. That's what we do. Will do internally. Yeah. What, ne what we now are looking for is, is, is people who want to integrate PicoCP in their own products, um, who want to do products with it, who want to develop some crazy protocol that can go somewhere in between yeah. one of the layers or on top of. Um, and why reinvent the wheel? Sorry. Why reinvent the wheel if you can take your code? Yeah. So. We want people to use it. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much for taking the time and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. The project is called? PDX Test. 
And you are? Alexander Aring. And what is PTXist? Yeah, that's a build system uh, tool which helps you to cross-compile all necessary stuff for your specialized uh, platform like the Raspberry Pi. So if you uh, want to make a Linux system, you need to care about uh, the bootloader, the root file system, yeah. and um, user space software, and finally also the Linux kernel. And PDX uh, sets all environment vari variables and uh, for cross compiling all necessary stuff. And uh, finally, it blocks out a file system image, and you can flash it on your SD card and then put it in your Raspberry Pi and finally Linux will boot and everything should work but you can also add more software um, interfacing for auto tools uh, so you can easily add your own uh, custom software to PDX disk board support package and then uh, and finally add your software to the final image uh, root file system so um On the HPR network, there's uh, people and they're writing their own software for uh, operating yeah. system for the Raspberry Pi. So oh. this will be a way of speeding up the compilation process to get it over to the Pi, I guess. But um, So when you're doing the compilation, you're using something like Ubuntu or Fedora or something like that? Yeah. And then you cross-compile over to the yes, Pi? Yes, exactly. Is there any hardware involved or not? Do you need any special hardware, or do you put the SD card into your own uh, PC? We have some uh, FreeBSD uh, board support package, which is open source, and there is also a platform for QEMU, and uh, with QEMU platform, you can um, run QEMU on it, and it boots um, your uh, PDX disk image. Um, okay. You don't need uh, special hardware for testing, but then you can switch maybe uh, to Raspberry Pi, Uh, Raspberry Pi and then uh, your software runs also on the Raspberry Pi. Okay, so um, what do I need to do to get uh, PTX disk installed? Is that a Linux distro in itself or is that an application I download uh, from? It's an application you can download it on uh, pdxdisk.org yeah. and uh, install it on your Linux machine yeah. and then you need uh, the free BSB. Uh, we name it uh, DistroKit. And it supports uh, several platforms, the BeagleBone, the Raspberry Pi 1, the Raspberry Pi 2, and uh, finally the, Q, uh, the QEMU. What, what is that piece of software? Is that software or hardware? Uh, what? You have the PTX disk, then you have something else. What's the something else? Uh, that's the uh, bottom-pork package, but... Uh, the uh, disk requires PTX disk, which yeah. has the, all the rules, the receipts, for cross-compiling the okay. necessary software and uh, uh, this is required to uh, build your bo uh, bot support package for your platform. Okay, and then at the end of this today, there's a software file on my laptop, which yes. I put on a USB stick or yeah. USB stick. Yeah, or, or SD card SD flash card, yeah. mid, uh, uh, with uh, DD, like a common on yeah. other... Uh, yes. Why would somebody make their own distribution for the Raspberry Pi? Says he, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an embedded system, and you have a f finally one use case maybe for it to run maybe a, a VPN uh, daemon or something else. And um, then with PDX, you can do your 
your special use case running for your Raspberry uh, Pi. And is it only Raspberry Pi or are there any other devices? Uh, we support in the board support package the Raspberry Pi 2 also yeah. and the BeagleBone. Okay, and, the and, yeah. and uh, yeah, finally the Kuemu with doesn't uh, where you don't need any hardware. Okay. And have you got your hands on the uh, Raspberry Pi 1 yet or not? Or the Zero? Yeah, the Zero. Uh, no, but uh, I know the the CPU is the same like the the, the one, one yeah. and it should should work. Yeah. 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 Very good. Why did you start this project? Uh, so uh, my my company uh, is uh, Pengotronics uh, starts the project and um, because uh, customers uh, wants to run Linux and makes then uh, fi uh, for their final uh, embedded use case to optimize and that's but it's uh, on an open source project everybody can join and all other companies are also uh, can look into the code what what sort of a license is it released under it's uh, uh, one moment it's uh, under GPL v2 okay and something else We also uh, have some uh, bootloader bear box. Yeah, what is that? A bear box is, is a that, that's a incredible uh, fancy bootloader. Yeah. Uh, because it has it lo it, it looks like Linux if you run it, but have not uh, many uh, process management or something else. It um, it has also internally the device interface like the Linux kernel so um, introducing new devices and mostly uh, copy pasting uh, the Linux uh, drivers and um, into the bearbox system so it's like a, a is it a cut down grub or a replacement for grub or well okay you don't have grub but uh, the bootloader itself It is boot it an operating system in itself or is it just to load another operating yeah, system that's uh, A difficult question because more, uh, yeah, because some people want to make an operation system with that, yeah. but uh, currently it's only a bootloader. Yeah. Um, but it has not uh, interrupt handling yet. So also copy pasting uh, Linux drivers, you need to uh, uh, care about the IRQ handling. Um, do some pussy waiting mechanism instead of request IRQ. Uh, and such stuff and uh, yeah it also has a file system layer and you can uh, over ethernet connect your network file system nfs and uh, inside the bootloader and how big is that uh, how, what size file size does it get to um, what sort of resources would you need to be running it, it depends what you enable It yeah. also use kconfig like the uh, Linux kernel. Yeah. Um, you can uh, enable and disable much stuff of them. Uh, like so is it Linux or is it not Linux? Is it derived from Linux? Is it's uh, it's the same license yeah. uh, which need to be and uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think you need to need to uh, make your own experience 
Yeah, it's, but uh, is it a, is do you take the Linux kernel and then strip it out, or is this a separate project that uses bits from the Linux more, kernel? It was based uh, based on uh, Ubuntu, yeah. but then we uh, grabbed some uh, Linux headers yeah. uh, to have the identical uh, interfaces for yeah. the drivers and. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's why uh, it's it looks like the feeling and of Linux. Okay, cool. What what sort of devices have you here on the table? What are you demoing? Uh, my demo uh, demo is more about uh, six low pan. This is for IPv6 over low power wireless personal area networks. Okay. That's uh, something like uh, low, uh, Bluetooth low energy. Yeah. And there exists another. Low power wireless standard, like, which is named uh, 802.15.4. Yeah. It's not common. Uh, it's catchy name. Uh, no right. catching name. Um, and um, the, uh, what you want is uh, uh, IPv6 on, uh, connection on such networks yeah. uh, to connect uh, them into the Internet of Things. So you can put some transceiver at your light bulb or uh, heater uh, for enable and disable your light or temperature sensoring of your heater and over the Bluetooth connection which is low power and then you need only to replace the, the battery for around uh, three years. Okay, so that I'll take some photos of that in the show okay. notes. Well, what's the device on the end? At the end there's uh, Bear box. Uh, no, uh, bear box is. Uh, you have some uh, AFI X, uh, X86 uh, based architecture. Yeah. Um, with uh, AFI, and that's uh, some new stuff because we want to add AFI support into the bear box uh, bootloader. So you can. Uh, it's. Uh, it was mostly for embedded systems like ARM yeah. and PowerPC and uh, something else, but uh, we want to support also uh, UEFI, uh, UEFI uh, on the uh, on the bear, uh, for Bearbox to booting Linux. Why would you do that? Because we want to replace Group uh, Group Two. And you want U- UFI? Um, no, because. Uh, I don't want it, but uh, companies build motherboards. Okay, thank you very much. Is there anything else that I missed that I should have asked? Because I have a few. I'm too distracted by the cool lights here. Anything that you want to tell us, or that's coming up in the next year that you're going to be releasing, or that you want help with? Uh, my my part. It's more about uh, six low pan stuff. I'm yeah. the Linux kernel maintainer yeah. of the of the stu- stuff, and maybe uh, somebody uh, wants to help. And uh, there exists a mailing list on the vgr.kernel.org v- okay. uh, on the uh, regular mailing list. And uh, our project is their uh, la- uh, Linux uh, WPAN. Thank you very much for yeah, the uh, interview. We're at the Java Car, the Java Card Pro booth, and your name is? Hello, my name is Martin Balak. 
And what is Java Card Pro? So Java Card Pro is basically an umbrella project of different uh, software utilities to you uh, make Java Card, specifically smart card programming, more accessible to new developers. Now, for, by smart card, you mean uh, something with a SIM chip like the old traditional uh, yes, we so have in the Netherlands where you can pay with a chip and pen? Right. So a smart card, basically, uh, it's either with a chip, with a contact interface, or uh, these days uh, Java cards also have an NFC interface so they can use the, the mobile phones. Or, for example, emulate an NFC tag. It's all possible with, uh, with uh, Java cards. So the main main difference, what I've been showing here today to people and yesterday to people, has been uh, 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 showing it. Uh, well, they don't obviously see it right now, but I'll take a photo and put it in the show. Okay. Uh, what's the difference between a small uh, a static uh, NFC tag where you can write like an URL or phone number or some text onto, and a programmable uh, smart card? So uh, when the information coming from an NFC tag is, is static the same URL which right there uh, the information coming from a programmable tag is well programmable which means you can generate content on the fly for example you can add OTP tokens to the um, URLs you generate or you can give like a random Chinese fortune cookie whenever you touch the phone uh, touch the card with the phone or and I mean the possibilities are endless and but you can't do that with the NFC ones? No, no, that's not possible because it's just static. You can uh, store a few hundred bytes of information to an NFC tag, but from a card, I mean, uh, the limits are much, much higher. Okay. Yeah. So, why? Why? It's a good question. I mean, it is an open source developers conference, right? So, why here? Uh, as I said, my uh, goal is to attract more developers to the smart card world. If developers to this day take smart cards as a static piece of hardware with a fixed firmware where you cannot you know, do anything, then actually there's a whole world of you know, tiny applications yet to be discovered by many developers. Uh, it's fun. It's, it, <laughs> well, as far as I can see, most of the development for smart card stuff is in the fraud space. Uh, is in in the fraud space. Oh yeah. Well, uh, yes, of course. And you can also you can uh, you, uh, programmable cards are also handy when you're doing like pen testing or just for security research. Uh, there are its uses. Uh, some are are um, some are malicious. Some are uh, maybe a bit gray. But uh, anyway. Uh, it's like with any other development thing, you can use it and you can abuse it. So you can use it for good things. So when you say it's programmable, what what exactly what can I do with this card that I'm holding up? Uh, well, you can uh, first of all, uh, you don't have to actually program anything yourself. It's like open source. There is a bunch of existing applications available from GitHub, for example. Applications, you mean? App like Java card applications, stuff you can actually install inside the chip of the smart card. When is that, and that will run when the reader gives it power. That yeah, that's correct. What sort of things? So, uh, people have been uh, like, like which is very commonly asked for is, is, hey, I know that smart cards are used for cryptography. I can store my private keys on it, like for SSH and PGP. But that is um, uh, that is not all you can do. Like, like, like I said, you can. Uh, generate uh, NFC tags. You can program them to, for example, give you access tokens for a Wi-Fi, for example. Now, think about it. It's a, You're a coffee shop, and you have an open Wi-Fi. Everybody can connect, but they can't really get anywhere unless they go inside physically to the coffee shop. There's a sign on the wall saying, touch here with a phone for internet access. 
and it's actually physically bound to the card. If you, you, you know, if you give a password, if the lady at the counter gives you a password, you can give the password to someone else. But that is physically guaranteed that you have to be physically there to touch the access token, which gives you, let's say, access for one hour. Yeah, but that's for NFC. But those yeah. are not programmable. You just put a piece of text. No, in there. I mean that, that's that's the idea. That if you have a programmable NFC tag, you can generate the access tokens programmatically. Yeah, but then everybody has to have a reader in their computers. In their mobile phones, but I mean these days, uh, I guess uh, all the newer mobile phones do have NFC by default. So what you're saying on this card, this programmable card, you have can communicate with it over NFC. Yeah, sure. Ah, right. Now I understand. Okay. So this this NFC tag that you put onto stickers, that's just dumb. It's got a number on it. But yeah. this I can change. Yeah, I mean you can change also the uh, the uh, yeah, stickers. It, you can write it. Yeah. But here I could look for your particular MAC address and then give you a particular code. Yeah, well, you actually com- need to combine it to the backend service, but basically, yes, you can do these types of stuff because I mean it's dynamically generated based on your program. You can do like uh, you know, like OTP t- tokens, basically, you know, physical authentication. And what to do with this information in the backend is totally up to you. Which this is just one example that you can uh, use uh, for Wi-Fi. So you'd have these, maybe three of these readers on the walls around a coffee shop, and you go up and you tap on that, and you're done. No, this is just an example. Any other cool, cool... How big are the pro- programs that you can put on there? How complex do they get? Um, how do you measure complexity? So, from as a programmer's point of view... The, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, okay, from programmer's point of view, the application size is usually, let's say, a few hundred to a few thousand. Not Let's say, not more than uh, three, four thousand lines. Uh, which, actually, the, the application size is... Uh, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 kilobytes. Well, yeah, this, uh, there, are, there are cars with varying uh, EEPROM sizes starting from uh, like 32 kilobytes up to 150 and uh, even 320. So, you know, the different, ca- different cars available from different vendors have different capabilities, like different, uh, you know, EEPROM sizes. So you can actually choose your, your uh, target platform based on your actual requirements. So you could like have a home access system, like a... Sp- on steroids for yourself. No, well, if that's your goal, then yes. I mean, my my, my idea is to uh, facilitate developers. Uh, I don't really care what they do with it. So. Okay, cool. So, what do I need to? I need some hardware to start. How much? What do I need? Where do I get it? Right. So. Um, this is where you you introduce your company. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That, I'm I'm a software guy. So. Uh, what you do need is a standard smart card reader. Uh, if you have one, like uh, here in Belgium, people have uh, an ID card, which is also basically a smart card, so they very often already have a smart card reader. Uh, or like an NFC reader, which uh, tends to be more expensive and, well, obviously doesn't work with cards that do not have NFC capabilities. Uh, and you need a, a Java card. So uh, there are plenty of Java cards available these days from different vendors of the internet. So you can uh, order cards starting ranging from five euros of uh, uh, cheap Chinese ones up to let's say uh, thirty euros or so for uh, very advanced uh, latest technology. Uh, let's say uh, Western Java cards with uh, high cryptographic capabilities of like elliptic curves and uh, you know uh, huge key sizes and so on. Um, and you need the open source software that's available from JavaCard.pro. And what uh, license do you release that under? Uh, 
It varies depending on... Uh, basically, it's a mix of uh, GPL, LGPL and MIT. So, uh, uh, usually it's so that the software that goes... That's provided by the project that goes into the card is licensed, mid-licensed, because uh, that's the only sensible license for such an application. Uh, but the host side software uh, is either uh, GPL or LGPL if it has roots in some projects that are LGPL. But most of my code, which I write myself, is MIT. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. I'm down here talking to Siobhan. Hi. And Siobhan, you, uh, you're knitting. So uh, uh, we just had a quick conversation there and I thought, okay, let's, uh, let's just record some stuff here. You were telling me that there's a, a knitting group here in Fostem. They're on Ravelry.com, which has a, a number of sub-communities known as groups. There is a Fosdem knitters group. So be... I can see from here at least one other person who is knitting. Yeah. Um, somebody showed me a picture of a T-shirt today which said knitting, coding since the 11th century. <laughs> it's what it is. We have knit and pearl. You have um, digital has, has 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 one and zero. Everything is made up from two elements. And if that sounds familiar to anybody who is a geek, then it probably should. Um, if you're interested in, in, in anything to do with knitting, crochet, spinning, dyeing, get to Ravelry.com. Um, if you're interested in knitting tutorials online, which are little videos that you can watch over and over again, that's knittinghelp.com. And all of this is free. And there's a, there's a huge crossover between, um, between hacking and, and knitting. Um, there's knitted wearables um, Netflix in the last month or so revealed knitting revealed patterns for socks which you can customise for your favourite shows which have embedded in them electronics which will turn off the, 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 the programme when you go to sleep you're binge watching Walking Dead you fall asleep your socks pause the show that pattern's available free excellent so there is a there's a huge that's a first world problem you have to admit. there's a huge crossover and get in touch get in, get in touch with the through Ravelry and um, happy knitting thank you as we were talking there you were knitting are you counting as, as you were going along how do you do is your, um, is your brain capable of, I don't know if my brain would be um, capable of doing that I've done this. I've done this movement in my lifetime several million times. Um, and you know this because I know this because I, st- I I learned to crochet when I was four. By then, I could already knit. So I've been knitting all my life. I knit. Uh, there, a day would rarely go by when I didn't pick up needles. So I have extremely refined muscle memory for this sort of thing. I can carry on a conversation easily. I can watch television easily. Um, the more complicated stuff I, you need, need, needs a bit more concentration, but that's the same with any, with, 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 with any act, activity. Um, most, I mean, most people can, can, can write their signature 
without look, without looking at the patient. It's because they do, they've so done. So you can it. do that. You can do this if you try it. You tie your shoelaces. You can you can learn to do this. Awesome stuff. Thank you very much. Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. 
unless otherwise stated. Today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.